This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. It has been a long time since a bucket list was brought up on this show, but today's that day. Almost four years to the day and a hundred episodes later, Andrew and I are going to go through an architectural bucket list of people, places, and things. I don't know what Andrew has in mind, but I'm feeling that my list will inspire you and change your life. Or at the very least, get you to go look something up. Welcome to episode 126, Architectural Bucket List, Take 2. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Peterson, manufacturer of pack-clad architectural metal cladding systems. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we are talking bucket lists, or more specifically, an architectural bucket list that, well, it has the same operating parameters as the one we went through as of the release of this episode, exactly four years and one day ago, which is kind of crazy that it's so close to, I mean, Jupiter and Mars are in retrograde (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) Alignment of some sort, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So anyway, this is a people, place, buildings, and item of design list. Was it hard for you to come up for new entries in this category? Some of them were a little bit hard, yeah. Are they? I spent about a day and a half researching, just thinking about it, figuring it out. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. Trying to whittle down, like, I could come up with 10 answers for every one of these. But putting one in the number one spot, yeah, that's the hard one for me. Yeah, and when I look at my list here right now, I don't have anything that has one thing in it. My list's got a couple oh. of items, and I'm going to be like... Okay, in the heat of the moment, I'm going to go, that's the one. That's where it's at. So, yes, I agree. One thing was hard. It was easy to come up with five really easily, but to take that five and pick one, that may happen today. No, no, I get, you know what? While we record, that's what's happening. Well, it's funny that you say it like that because frequently when I'll go to a restaurant and they'll say, well, what are you going to get? Not the waiter, but the people I'm with. They're like, what are you going to get? And I go, I don't know. I have an idea. It's usually I'm trying to decide between two. I need the pressure of the waiter going, what do you want mm-hmm. for me to go, uh-huh, this? Yeah. I won't pick until that moment. Yeah. And then I feel okay. Then I go, that's what I need. I needed the pressure to make that decision. Yeah, and I wouldn't be upset with any of the choices that I've got here, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't have any wrong ones, I don't think, out of the three or four I have listed, so. It's your list. I don't think you yeah. can have a wrong one. Right. Well, I mean, I might could have wrong ones, but, you know. Okay, so let's get into it. Last time we did person, we did place, we did building, we did a thing. And we took one off. We did like an activity. We chose like a destination. We're going to go to take a class or whatever. We're scratching that one. And the event and I thought we scratched the tool also. I'm hoping. I didn't do that one either. We scratched the tool. We're not doing okay. the tool. We're like, uh, I want to be a Revit master. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. no, we're not going to do that one. We're going to keep this list pure. So on my list, I just have the four. I could do projects. We had five, right? Didn't we say we were going to do? Mm-hmm. I can do that. You want to do that one as well? It doesn't matter. Okay, well, if we were going to drop one in for me, it would be Thing. That's I had the most trouble with Thing, quite honestly. Yeah, I had a hard time with Thing, too, but I like my answer. I feel good about it. I took a page out of your book on that one. We'll get there. Ooh, all right. I'm very excited to see what page from my book you took. Okay, so let's start with Person as the number one. Did you go first last time? Should you go first again? I don't know. Okay, you go first. I'm excited to hear your person. (laughs) Okay, the premise for this, I think, last time was... Somebody you wanted to have it was your architectural pal. Right. Your buddy, your like a really good friend. Again, you took a different viewpoint on it than I did the last go around. 
because you were looking for somebody that would be cool to hang out with and be a friend. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I like this person's work. Yes. I think I'm still stuck with that a little bit, but a little bit different. So my person, I think, is actually Genie Gang. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean like that's a bad decision, though, really. I would just like, yeah. I don't know. We haven't had much chats about her. Yeah, no, I know. It's really because, A, I like most of her work, but B, we were at the convention in Chicago. She was on a tour of the building. She had just done Aqua. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she just seemed kind of cool, kind of laid back, kind of interesting, but fun. And so last time I was a little bit serious with Renzo. So this one I picked Jeannie. I watched a couple of YouTube videos of her yesterday. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I could do that. So, yeah. you know, I thought, you know, again, choice always seems to be Glenn Market for this kind of stuff. But I feel like, A, he might be a little too old. <laughs> B, he may not be fun. <laughs> I don't know. So I went a different route and I picked Jeannie. It's funny. I actually was thinking about this question for you yesterday. So I think you probably remember, you're more likely to remember this than I would, but I was on that same tour and she led it. Mm-hmm. I remember I got a book and I got her to sign it. And it was cool. I brought my book with me and she was yeah. kind enough and I got a bunch of people to sign it. That was a really fun tour and she was quite cracking jokes. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't think that. She was like a docent. <laughs> like just some like, oh, we got some student to do it mm-hmm. who knows a lot about the building. Yeah. Yeah. She was a really good sport and a, a good host for that tour. Yeah. I was thinking about Glenn Market for you, and I thought, they probably have the exact opposite sleep patterns. <laughs> right? Probably. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Andrew doesn't want to wake up before noon. He's probably already thinking, I'm about to shut it down for the day. <laughs> He's up at four in the morning, and you're just yeah. going to bed. Yeah. You'd never see each other. Exactly. So. <laughs> We'd pass for 10 minutes in the early morning hours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's where I ended up. And it was actually different than what I was expecting when I sat down and started thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So I had a little trouble with that one, but not too bad. And yourself? Okay, so I went through the same process before. And it was hard until all of a sudden it wasn't hard at all. Mm. Which, I don't know, maybe that makes sense if you like, put your brain in the right place. Because I was like, I got a lot of people whose work I admire and I like. And mm-hmm. thinking about, I'll go through my Instagram feed and it'll fresh my memory about, you know, who do I like? <laughs> I'm like, like, I have to think about it. Yeah, that's kind of where I was at. And it just wasn't working for me. I went I went for a walk, not because I was so dismayed over this. I was just like, <laughs> I need to get out of my head for a while. On my walk, I went, duh, here's who this should choose. Now, last time I chose it because I thought he'd be fun to hang out with, and he's a good architect. I don't know if this person would be fun to hang out with, but he lives in a city that I know is awesome to be in, and he does amazing work, and he seems like a pretty, I don't know. I looked, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. I think I know how to pronounce his name. I'm sure I've said it before. Mm. And I looked for all these videos. The guy just doesn't talk about himself, hardly ever. So it was Pitsu Kadim is who I chose. Mm. And he's in Tel Aviv. He started his company 23 years ago. He does some commercial work, but most of what he does is really, really simplistic. And maybe clarity is the right word. It's not simple, but there's a lot of very simple massing that goes to his work. And... The first project I remember seeing was a project of his called the J House. And I'll put a link to that project. His site's super slow to load. I don't know if it's on my end or his end. But it was really great. And what was nice about it is they don't just show glamour shots and renderings and stuff like that. They actually show like how it was made. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that goes into making these really simple shapes is mind-boggling because he's got giant pieces of glass and they're dealing with that Tel Aviv is right on the Mediterranean Sea. So here's a fun fact for you. Did you know that Tel Aviv and Dallas are essentially on the exact same latitude with one another? Latitude? No, I had no idea. That's interesting. Yeah, so I think Dallas is 32.4, I think, Mm -hmm. and Tel Aviv is 32.1. 
So we have the exact same amount of daylight as one another, but they're right on the Mediterranean Sea. So they have a wildly different climate than we have, but they deal with the same sun issues that we would get up here. Mm -hmm. And so he's got a lot of screens. So if you're going to design these buildings and they have like giant walls of glass, you know, you're like, well, I got to deal with that in some way because the heat gain would be like crazy. Mm -hmm. So they'll show like construction photos of how do we do this? Like, how do we make this cantilever be the way this is? And I always really appreciate when people pull the curtain back and show the secrets, how the sausage is made, as it were. <laughs> yeah. Part of the reason I like that, it's, you know, when I started this website, people used to say, I can't believe you're showing people drawings. You're opening yourself up to all sorts of things. And then some people say, why are you showing your secrets? I go, these aren't secrets. Number one, these are not secrets. Yeah. But two, by the time I show you under construction, I'm on to the next thing. I'm on to something else. I'm not just like redoing the same thing over and over again. And that's something that back when I first started doing this and when I first found him, people weren't doing that sort of thing. They weren't showing how stuff was done. They were just like, oh, like we're not sharing how we flash this parapet where you can't see anything. Like nobody shows that stuff. Mm -hmm. I wish our industry was more about that. Yeah, you know, I think now the longer that I do it, because I guess when I was practicing all the time, I wasn't that interested in some of those things. Maybe I was, shouldn't say that. I wasn't seeking out as much of that mm -hmm. as I do now that I'm teaching. And it's funny. I find that it seems like in America, that's how it is. But in other countries in Europe, it's not quite as bad. They share more stuff. Because it's funny. One of the other people that was on my list was Campo Baeza, mm -hmm. who's a Spanish architect. Go to his website. He's got all that kind of stuff. He's got drawings. But I mean, he shows this is it Like for all of his projects. I think it's really interesting. I agree with you. Like I like that aspect when more architects do that. Yeah. I find it helps me appreciate their work even more, honestly. Yeah. You know, and I agree. That's a good way to put a bow on that is, you know, I said before that to, to appreciate something, you have to understand it. Maybe not. I mean, you can appreciate it one level without understanding it. But if you know the story behind it, if you knew what it took to make it happen, or whenever there's some kind of narrative to an end product that creates a story that leads you to the destination, it's always a better experience all the time. Mm -hmm. So I like him and his work. And like I said, I don't know if he's a fun guy to hang out with. Every now and then, the thing that I kind of struggle with is I'm not sure that any great architects are fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I wonder, I don't know how true that is because they, they're very serious about what they do. And there was this one group that I was thinking about putting on and I watched a couple of videos and I was like, I definitely don't want to hang out with this person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the work they do is beautiful and sensible and it's poetic and it's very thoughtful. And I went, that's probably all they do. I don't know that you can operate on this level where you're bringing in the certain level of introspective creative process and be a goofball at times mm -hmm. i just don't know that it happens very often yeah if they're really good they seem to be really serious you know that's like eh. yeah i want a little bit of serious because for sure i don't want the clown show all the time for yeah. sure but i want to have those serious conversations but i also want to go grab a beer and goof off every now and then <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah for sure i think he might be that person but at any rate i think it'd be fun to hang out with him and like walk around his projects for a while i think that'd be fun mm. okay the next one that we have on our list is place. Mm -hmm. And I'll go first because my answer is, I don't know that it's short and there's a reason behind it, but it, I'm not sure that it's a good answer. This was probably the hardest one for me because most of the time when I travel, I don't travel for architecture. Mm -hmm. And part of that because there's architecture everywhere. I don't need to go somewhere to see something specific because I might go to somewhere and discover something. Yeah. Like when I went to the Dominican Republic, the areas that I was in when I was in the DR, 
I mean, it was not, there was nothing fancy going on, but it was still interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think I've told the story that because they're in such a high hurricane corridor, that everything is made out of CMU and concrete. Concrete frame, CMU block and fill, because they just get battered all the time. But every project has, I'm doing air quotes, at the roof, has rebar sticking up. Because they're like, at some point, we're going to add on to this building. It's such a positive, we're not done. You know? (laughs) And there's always going to be more. And so there's always something to look at. There's always something to appreciate. And what they do regionally and how different it is from where I'm from. So I don't ever feel the need to go somewhere for the specific purpose of looking at architecture. Because I'll get that anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I tend to think about where do I want to be? Where would I like to go? And when I thought about that, the answer that popped in my head was Norway. I want to go to Norway. Am I influenced by the fact that I'm Norwegian and I've never been to Norway? Yeah, of course. That's a big part of it. But I know enough to have a conversation, probably with a Norwegian, about the architecture that's in Norway, the extreme nature of their climate, the long, harsh winters, the frost, heavy precipitation. It influenced their design and the fact that there's wood everywhere and there's a craftsmanship that's demonstrated in some of their older buildings. And it's an old culture. So there's, they have Viking architecture. There's a prehistoric period. They have stave churches from the Middle Ages. Yeah. For those that don't know, a stave church is, to keep it simple, it's basically a wooden church that has a heavy timber framing, posts and a little construction. I mean, they're pretty hand-hewn, simple, even though they can be elaborate buildings. They have a modernism period. In the 20s, modernism took root there. and Everybody knows about Scandinavian design, and it's a big part of this philosophy of how you live and how the products you use contribute to your your life, but not in a, I have a million things way, but like what makes sense, what's practical, what's beautiful in its simplicity. And there's a couple like really cool Norwegian firms, like probably the one that most people are familiar with is Snoetta. So I'd like to go to Oslo and see the Opera House. And I think the first project that I was aware that he did was this Norwegian wild reindeer center pavilion like 12 years ago. Mm. It's so beautiful there because the mountains and the forest and like just it's a really beautiful place. All the shots make the architecture look incredible. And then I don't know if you're familiar with the, I'm probably butchering all these names, the Juvet Hotel. So the Juvet Hotel, and there's a lot of articles on it. You can go rent cabins that are set in the wilderness, and they're like the most outrageous, awesome, cool, Scandinavian-designed experiences ever. But then there's also Rael Fromstad, which I follow him on Instagram. You know, they're heavy hitters, so it's not just the Snowetta Mm -hmm. show going on there. There's a lot of really cool architects that are doing some pretty amazing things, and and I'll put links to all this stuff, so if if you're listening and you're not familiar with these people, it's worth a little bit of a rabbit hole of your time to go down there and check it out. So in addition to those kind of architects and the architecture and the history of the country and the evolution of from Viking architecture and medieval architecture and the churches to the more modern and contemporary stuff, it's a beautiful place. The fjords, the mountains, the green. I tend to want to go on vacation where the speed of everything else is at a different pace than what I'm used to. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it's the perfect place for me. And I look the part. All I got to do is put on a yellow rain jacket and I 100% would fit in. Fit in. That's funny. Yeah. So that's my place. I'm feeling pretty confident about that as a winning destination for somebody to go. And supposedly they're the happiest people on the planet. Happiest people on the planet. I could use some of that, to be honest with you. (laughs) I just wonder if it would rub off or not. So I think it's kind of funny and I didn't realize it when I thought of it. And then now that I've chosen it, may look back, but this is actually, it's the same as what you chose last time. But for me, the place I want to go is Tokyo. It's good. Yeah, it's a winner. 
And last time you said, I think you had Kyoto or just Japan in general, but Tokyo for me, because of similar reasons, I think, similar reasons that there's a lot of history as well as there is a lot of modern things. I'm kind of more interested in the city aspect of it, I think, because my other option here was Singapore because it was really full, but yet somehow possibly futuristic feel and vibe that you always get there. And so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that was the reason that I chose Tokyo. But also then when I dig into it, there's still there's a lot of history. There's a lot of older parks, I guess, you know, they call them parks and places to visit there. Like in Shinjuku, there's the Sensoji Temple, which is an old temple, not as old as the one I had in Kyoto that you had last time, but still a really old temple. And I think it's just an interesting cultural experience. I've become pretty good friends with a professor, a colleague, friend who's from Japan. I keep begging him to take me with him when he goes back. Just shove me in your giant suitcase and I'll go with you. So I think it's Tokyo for a lot of those similar reasons about there's a long history there, but there's some really nice modern things that are happening. Also, just I think part of me wants to be in an environment, and I don't know that I would like it for forever, but where there's a whole lot of people. Mm-hmm. It may eventually drive me nuts. I may just be like, I hate this. There's too many people. I'm going to get away. But then I could go outside, like outside the city. Mm-hmm. Because again, I think there are parts of Japan that are really beautiful too. Yeah. That's how I ended up in, in Tokyo. Obviously, I think that's a winning answer. And at some point in my life, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to end up there. I don't know how I can live my life and not go, to be honest with you. Yeah. So how I execute, that's what I haven't figured out yet. But yeah, I totally want to do it. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you mentioned even Singapore. I have a friend of mine who lives in Singapore, mm. a college friend. He's been there forever. And mm. It's a n- nice practice and beautiful house. And, and he's invited me out there a bunch of times. and I've just never done it. But for me, Singapore, when I've thought about it, I think of it as a food culture, first and foremost. Sure. I thought about putting that on my list, but then I went, well, I'm going there because I'd like to see my friend and I'd like to see how much food I can eat while I'm there. (laughs) Yeah. So I I decided to pivot. And so you chose Tokyo and I I chose the entire country. (laughs) It's not that big. Come on. Come on. It's not that big. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not to somebody from Texas. True. Probably. How many Norways could I put in Texas? Probably a couple. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. And now I'm going to have to Google, like, how big is Stowaway compared to Texas? I know. I'm going to have to do a landmass uh, query. Exactly. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by David R. Mercer, CSI, AIA, Allied Member, and Territory Sales Manager for Peterson, maker of pack-clad architectural metal cladding systems. David has been with Peterson since 2016, and has been in the architectural metals industry since 1991, holding positions in sales and management for product manufacturers and distributors. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure getting back together again with you. I know. It's been seven, eight months since the last time we chatted. We're here today to talk about something a little bit different. We're actually going to specifically talk about finishes, focusing on the PVDF ore and wood grain finishes that PacClad offers. So why don't you give a brief introduction of what those finishes are? Absolutely. It's been a trend in the design and construction of all the projects that we've seen coming out over the last several years, more specifically in the last three to five. The ore series and wood grain series colors will add that dynamic look to the project. They dazzle you with that organic note, the sophistication of a wood grain or the ore look. The wood grain to the casual observer 
they're going to look at the project and they're going to see wood on the building in those dynamic areas that are designed into the project. From a distance, it's going to appear that you have natural wood on there. The cool thing about the pack clad wood grain products is that, as you noted, they are a PVDF paint system. And with that paint system comes a 20 to a 30 year finish warranty with no maintenance. PVDF is part of the Teflon family, so it's nonstick. So debris, dust, dirt does not collect as readily as it would with a natural wood, and it would not require the maintenance. So architects, designers are bringing these elements into their projects, and PetClad's offering them an opportunity to do that with a low-maintenance product. And the cool thing about it is that they can get that along with their standard color, standard pattern panels, all from one manufacturer. And the same can be said with our ore series. It adds that interest of a natural metal look from a distance. And again, 20 to 30 year finish warranty and very low maintenance. As known with uh, natural metals, they do have a tendency to change weather in some runoffs, things of that nature that will, over the life of the project, change the dynamics of the look of the building. And again, this ore series system with the PVDF paint system, it's not going to have that. Once you pick that color, it's going to remain that color. Pecklad and our vendors will stand behind that PVDF paint system for you. Well, I know that there are 16 standard finishes in each one of both the wood grain and the ore. And these can apply to any of the metals. It can be used on any of the panel systems. You can use them on walls and soffits, inside, outside. I mean, it's a pretty flexible system. Absolutely. A lot of these designs are bringing elements and character on the outside of the building to the inside of the building. They're carrying some of the soffits up through the outside to the inside. The ore series, again, striking and can also be pulled into the internal design of the project. So let me ask a question. I'm going to put you to the test here, David. Can you tell me what PVDF stands for? PVDF polyvinyl difluoride is the paint resin system. It's very common in the industry. It's from the Teflon family, as I brought up earlier. It is also elastic so that when you adhere it to your metal, when you bend it and break the metal, the paint system remains intact. It does not crack or craze like an inflexible system, like an anodized, which is a hard coat on aluminum, will crack and craze. So people specify PBDF, where it's also known in the industry as Hylar or Kynar, and that all refers to the paint resin in the paint system. And it's been around the industry for many, many years. That's awesome. Well, David, I appreciate you taking the time to jump on with us today and talk a little bit about the finished package that PackClad is providing with its metal panels with the wood grain and the ore systems. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's always good to get together with the band. <laughs> nice. For more information, visit packclad.com or send an email to info at pac-clad.com or call 800-PAC-CLAD to find your local representative also, you can find them by going to pack-clad.com and clicking the rep locator link at the top of the website. 
Okay, so let's go on to building. All right, I think this is your turn to go first. Yeah. I got a good one. I think I got a good one. Mm. Yeah, this one was hard for me. I had several choices. And oddly enough, one of them was by one of the firms you just mentioned. Snowheada. But mm. I'm not going to pick that one. And then I also... Meaning the Opera House. No. I mean, that was one of them. Yeah. But again, it's funny. I found myself drawn to the historical. Because last time I picked the pyramids. Again, really what popped in my mind was another... It's pretty historical. <laughs> I know. A, another really historical site. Not so much a building, but a complex. But I'm going to pivot from that again. And I'm going to go with a place in Mexico City. It's going to be the Biblioteca Vasconcelos, which I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a really interesting public library where it's this giant volume of openness, but the books are all suspended from all these different platforms in this really large open atrium space. It's just a really cool looking library. I will admit, though, there's not very many pictures of the exterior, so it would really be going for the interior experience mm. of that place. But sure. I mean, I think that's okay, but I've come across it several times in the past, I don't know three, four years since we've been doing this, coming up in certain things. And so I would like to go visit it. And the funny thing is, I guess it's you know, sort of close to us here in Texas. It wouldn't be that difficult, I don't imagine, but it's on my list. Yeah. You wouldn't even need a connecting flight. No. You could probably get there direct. Yeah. And you could leave in the morning and still show up in the morning. Yeah. If I wanted to be crazy, I could probably drive, but I, mean, I wouldn't do that. But, you know. That would be crazy. <laughs> I don't recognize the name. Yeah. So I'll have to go look that up. I will tell you the other ones on my list, Angkor Wat in Cambodia mm -hmm. as the historic place. And then actually the, the Snowheader Project was the under, the restaurant that's half in the water, half out, changes with the tide. Oh. That was the Snowheader Project that I wanted to go see. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously, it's your list. You can't go wrong. But those are all interesting <laughs> destinations to be sure. Yeah. Okay. I actually thought my answer is so patently obvious that I thought there was a possibility that you could have chosen this one as well. So before I pull the curtain back, I saw this building under construction in 1990. Here's another clue. It's not done yet. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the Basilica e Temple Expiatori di la Sagrada Familia. Yeah. I put an accent on there because I probably said it wrong anyway. So if I'm all in on... <laughs> anyway, so most people know it is just Sagrada Familia. Sagrada Familia. And it's in Barcelona, Catalonia, Spain. It's the largest Catholic church, not a cathedral, but it's the largest Catholic church in the world. And I remember hearing about this project when I was in school. I saw the models. I saw how Antonio Gaudi used string and weights to figure out the loads. And mm -hmm. so when we went there, so much of it was covered up with scaffolding and netting that I couldn't see it when I visited Barcelona in 1990. And I haven't been back to Barcelona since. I know a fair amount. There's so many stories. Okay, so just in case you know, the church started construction in 1882. And when they people that commissioned it had come back from Italy and they were inspired to do something, they said, we're going to do this. And they hired a guy, an architect, Francisco de Paula de Villar. I'm sure I'm not saying this right. He was hired. He is the original architect of Sangrada Familia. But he resigned from the project after the crypt. So he designed the crypt. It got built, and then he resigned, and then they brought in Antonio Gaudi in 83, and he, of course, radically changed the direction of where this was going. He worked on this project until he died in 1926. That's a long time to be working on a single project. 
And then when he died in 26, they estimated that the project was probably around 15 to 20 percent complete after almost 40 years of construction. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So they kept working on, obviously, and it was work was halted. It was interrupted by the Spanish Civil War in 1936. And I didn't know this until I read a book about it, that during the Spanish Civil War, Gaudi's workshop, his studio, was destroyed and there was fire. And they lost models. They lost drawings. I mean, they lost, like, this is how we're building it. And so what we're seeing now is a bunch of highly educated projections of what they think was proposed to be done. Hmm. Because, like, I don't know if all the stuff was burned, but a lot of it was burned. They're like, they don't know what, they don't know. Yeah. And so here's another little fun fact. Did you know that work has continued? With the exception of the interruption mm-hmm. in 1936, uninterrupted until the pandemic. Yeah. When they stopped it for a while. I do know that. Yeah. They're getting really close too, right? I mean, they topped out. 2026 is when it's estimated to be complete. So a couple of years. Yeah. They topped out part of it here recently. Well, it's been consecrated. I think it was Pope Benedict. should have looked this up. Like 16. He consecrated the church, I think, uh, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, 2010. But yeah, I, I want to go back so bad. There's one place I want to go. I mean, I've been to Barcelona and it's an amazing city. And we studied the Serta grid, the whole thing. And, you know, and I was 22 years old when I was there. Mm-hmm. Life was a lot different for me. I had no, I hadn't, I didn't have two copper coins to rub together. Yeah. $3 <laughs> in your pocket. So I didn't do anything. All I did was walk around and look at stuff. That was it. Mm-hmm. And pretty sure my experience going back there now would be wildly different. But one of the th- reasons I want to go back is maybe the building in the world that I want to see the most. Mm. You know, it's going to be the tallest church ever made. It's certainly, it's the biggest Catholic church. in. I mean, it's checking a lot of cool boxes for me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, that was also on my list, but I thought it was almost too cliche to say. <laughs> I know. I just, you know what? I'm going to lean into that. I am cliche. I'm fine with that. But it really was on my list because, I mean, I've never seen it. I've never been there. So whenever you want to go, I'm totally on board. Yeah. We'll go check it out together because, yeah, it's definitely one of those things. Okay. Good choice. Good choice. All right. So the next item that we are supposed to put on our bucket list is thing. And I'll go first on this one because I have a thing on my list. Mm-hmm. So I have been slowly, painfully slowly, to be honest with you, adding to my collection of things that are in my personal space. And most of these items are a reflection of what most people would consider these iconic historical. This thing represents something important or people went wow when it came out. And I'll say most of the items that I've collected to date are pretty small. And I'm sure that's a reflection of money. (laughs) Not getting anything big. (laughs) Budgetary constraints. Yes. Yes. And so some of those things are starting to lift for me a little bit, but like even like it's when I put the, the stapler that was on my list, the Eliza stapler, I go, that's a cool thing. Just like I could go buy a stapler at Staples and it'd be some swing line staple, which you know what? It gets the job done. It's fine. But yeah. It's not cool. It's, it's not a reflection of something that people go, oh, well, you don't even have this Eliza stapler because it, it's a reflection of me as a person to have mm-hmm. something like that. I think I'm starting sure. to enter into that headspace a little bit. And if you go back and you look at all of the what to get an architect for Christmas, these little things, these little objects that I've been collecting are making it onto my list. So I've been putting one on my list and those are the ones that I've been getting. So like the La Stanza della Scarocco bowl, I'm sure I didn't say that right, or that George Nelson stainless steel elephant bottle opener. 
The next one, here's a little sneak peek. This is going to end up on my Christmas list this year, is the Eames House Whale. Oh, uh-huh. House Whale. Yeah. I want a house whale. <laughs> I mean, there's just something about a house whale. A house whale, yeah. And, you know, I have that cast iron sea ranch. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like whales, I guess. But that house whale is like $1,300. Like, come on, man. Yeah. Like, you need a reproduction of an, I'm sure it's made out of ash and lovingly painted. Sure. I think Vitra makes it, but I still want it. So as I started thinking through all these things, the thing I decided I was going to settle on, because I've been fascinated with again recently, it's shown up on this website twice already. You can get one of these for yourself for barely $30. I go, I don't know how you don't do this. Do you have any idea what it is? You've seen them. No, not a clue. They've made it onto my shopping list twice. Uh, I have not a clue. All right. They are known as the Dornberg Owls. Oh, yeah. So I have two of them, and I recently relocated one. Just as soon as I started paying attention to it again, I was like, this thing is so incredible. And everyone who sees it, they go, this thing is, where did you find this? They think I found it in some like weird curio shop. I go, you can go online and buy this right now. Like They're still making these. They're important because they were made by the ceramic workshop, the Bauhaus famous workshop, by Heiner Hans Korting. It's K-O-R-T-I-N-G, Korting. Yeah. But it's got an umlaut on it, so I might not be saying it right. And it's in Donbury, and I went there a couple years ago. And Korting's son, Ulrich, still runs that studio. And so I bought a couple of these things and hauled them around Germany for a long time. So I have two in my house, and I think they're amazing. I mean, they're literally the coolest little things you've ever seen in your life, and they're unchanged. They're 100 years old almost at this point. Mm -hmm. And you can have one, 32 euro. That's what it is, plus shipping, $500. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. 7,000. I don't know. Still probably 50 bucks total. That's a pretty low entry point for something that represents a fairly significant. So part of the Bauhaus education, there were architects, there were ceramicists, there were weavers. They all had like, here are the high watermarks for each one of these. This was the high watermark of their ceramics was this guy and what he did. Mm. Anyway, very, very cool. Very easy to obtain. Highly recommend getting one. Because, you know, this one where like, it's an owl, but the head and the body are separate and wholly complete. And the head is round. So when you put the head on the body, you can rotate the head around so that it has like different expressions by the way that it's yeah. twisting its head and looking at you. Yeah. owl yes. type things. Yes. You can make it to where it looks like it's looking at you like, what? What are you doing? Or just with this disdain, like, come on, man. Or like, hey, I'm happy to see you. It's amazing. Uh, just something about it. I love it as a thing. And the entry point of it is so easy and obtainable. I wanted to put it on my list because it's a high watermark for me. So that's my thing on my bucket list. Okay. It's a good one. You're like, I've got a Ticonderoga pencil. <laughs> no, because again, this is the one where I took from your book. Because last time you just picked something that you wanted. That's how all these work for me. It wasn't even architectural. And so for me, this one is not really architectural. It, it's a bucket list thing for me as a person. Well, people should know I chose a car, a Jaguar, the XJE. I know. That's what I chose last time. I know. I still stand by that decision. That thing's amazing. It's beautiful. <laughs> I am choosing a 1965 Fastback Mustang. All right. Interesting choice. Mainly because that's the first car I ever owned. Oh, you had one? Mm-hmm. Why don't you still own it? I do. I do still own it. Oh, do you? Yeah, but it is not in drivable condition anymore. It's been sat up for 20-something years because the transmission went out in it, or I would still drive it. I would like one that's fully restored back to pristine condition. And that's just part of, I guess, maybe it's a, it's more of my personal bucket list thing. Right. But that would be it. 
I have a huge affinity for those cars because actually my family, we all had one for a while. We have we owned four Mustangs at one point in our history. Wow. In your history or at one time? No, at one time. At one time. All of you had Mustangs. Mm-hmm. What color is it? Mine right now? Yeah. It's burgundy. Dusty. Yeah. Rust. <laughs> when I bought it, it was Caspian blue, the dark blue. My sister had a red one. My dad had a white one. So mine was always a weird color. My sister's was red. My dad was white. Now we stay that way. Mine changed colors about six times <laughs> because I was. Because you kept painting it? Is that what it is? Yeah. I was like, eh, I want to change this. I want to change that. So because I was young and stupid. Now I would like to get it back to, or have one that was originally restored back to its former glory when it came off the line for $2,000 in 1965. Do you have any designs of doing this yourself? Oh yeah, I do. I don't have the time or the place or anything, but yeah. I would love to restore it myself Yeah, spend the time doing it, but free time is not a lot of things I have at the moment, maybe in the near future. Okay. When my kids are gone, so. Well, the fact that you have it is still pretty cool. I mean, even if you like take one little bite at a time, eventually. Yeah. The problem with some of that is some of it's really big things to start with. Mm-hmm. There's some rust and some body work and things that have to be done that I don't really want to do, but anything else I would do. I mean, engine-wise and interior-wise, I would do all that work. Yeah. All right. That's my bucket list. That's why I say I took a page from your book and just picked a car, but maybe more personal reasons than anything else. Look, I got no complaints about you choosing a 65 Fastback. My sister dated a guy who had a 65 Fastback. Mm. I thought they were cool. I didn't like sitting in the back seat. I'll tell you that much. No, nobody did. It's a two-seater car. I mean, honestly. As a small child, I still had to sit sideways in the back seat. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll move on to the last category, which is building type. And the, the question was like, okay, if you could design any kind of project, was there a type that you would want to do? Mm-hmm. And I'll go first on this one as well, because I don't think I have a very long or interesting answer. So last time I chose a house, but in a very remote location. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted like cabins, like in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. not having to deal with HOAs or like curbs. <laughs> you know, yeah. I want it to be out in the middle of nowhere. Like, because I really like the idea of, I'm wondering if I'm turning into a recluse. Like, the idea that I could live in a house that I don't see a neighbor is so appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it's basically that, that's still the answer. But my twist, if you can call it a twist, is I've always wanted to design a single family house in the middle of nowhere, like in the woods, but it's like a compound of buildings. So, it's not like, Here's the house, and this one envelope of a building has all the things that you would want if you were going out someplace. I want, like, here's my kitchen and living area. It's in this building. Mm-hmm. And then there's, like, a pathway or some kind of way of connecting it to a sleeping building. And then it connects to a workshop or a studio. So I want to do, like, these little mini compounds. So instead of having mm-hmm. an aggregate larger square footage of a footprint, I'd rather distill down shared uses and combine them, but then separate them from one another. So that I could be having a rave in my living space and someone could be getting a nice sleep in another space. Yeah. That's not the motivation, but just the idea to separate these out and how do I design it to where they're connected, but they're all part of a whole. That's the challenge. That's the thing that I'd want to do, honestly. Mm. So that's my, that's my building type, the single family remote compound. <laughs> Sounds very Ted Bundy, but, but it wouldn't be that. There'd be no armory. Yeah, Charles Manson-ish. I got you. So. I get it. Although I feel like you're cheating because you just said, well, here's my same answer. (laughs) Yeah, but it's not. It's a variation. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. So for me, this one 
this was hard for me because I still tend to lean more towards public work. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I've done most of my life, and I guess that's more what I'm interested in. And so I had this one narrowed down to two categories. I think I'm going to go, though, with the large performance hall theater space or place. Because mm-hmm. I think those are interesting projects. The other reason I want to take them on is I think they're probably pretty complicated. Yes. And that part intrigues me because there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that you have to get right in order for them to work and all that. And that really intrigues me as a challenge. And last time I chose museums, which, yes, they're working parts, but it's not quite as specific in its complexities as a performance hall space. So right, yeah, that would be the one I choose. Plus, they're always big, somewhat iconic things that people do. And the other one I was was a library, but I think I got focused on that because I was looking at all those libraries for my building. And so, yeah, but I think it's really a theater hall, mainly because of the complexity of it. And it might be I did it once and I would never, ever want to do it again. That kind of thing, it would be so dramatic and over the top that I'm like, nah, I don't want to do this again. But sitting here today, that would be what I would say. I would want to give that a shot. You know, I was the local rep for Diller, Scafidio, and Renfro on the Kalita Humphreys, Frank Lloyd Wright designed project that the Dallas Theater Company is looking to pull off. That they're renovating, yeah. Well, it's not just, so part of it's they're scraping off all the gross additions that are not Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, are they? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a big project because they're like, okay, we're going to, how do we make a black box? You know, how do we do this stuff? Like, here's the additions. Here we made this adjust to comedy ADA and it wasn't very sensitive and mm. enclosed this patio on the second floor. There was a lot of work that was done to the original that changed it. And so the new plan is to restore it back to its original design, but there's a lot of functionality that's missing. Mm -hmm. And there's things they want to do to make it more of a viable destination and a a way to financially support itself. So there's several other buildings that would be new construction. They want to do new theater spaces that they can rent out. A lot of theater groups don't have their own theaters, so they have to rent a theater when they're going to put on a show. Mm -hmm. Restaurants, after hours, how do you engage the site after hours? How do you make it a destination when you're not coming there just to see a production? A show. And we would have these calls. And yes, there was a huge component because we had Frank Lloyd Wright experts on the call. We had restoration experts on the call. We'd have like 30 people on every phone call. The number of consultants on this project was so high. And when you talk about complex, how do you restore it? How do you fix the air conditioning Mm. from when it was originally done to actually make it viable and function the way it needs to function now because people have different requirements or needs or standards to systems? Sure. How do you put in a system and not have it be on display but work within the existing parameters of that building? It was wildly complicated. But I can see why people like doing those buildings. If you like these complicated puzzles and you like the group dynamic of having 30 specialists, all these people are like, great at what they do yeah they get like cherry pick from around you're not even like going hey i'm working with local talent no they're like this group's out of la and that group's out of chicago and these two are out of new york and everyone's coming everybody's cherry pick from wherever they're at because this is what they do and they're really good at it Mm -hmm. so sitting on those calls it's just like a master class in how to do air conditioning or electrical distribution or restoration work it was incredible yeah so i think that's an interesting choice i think that would be fun yeah, it just seems like a really strong puzzle. Yeah. Like you say, to figure out yeah, everything. For sure. And that intrigues me. Okay. So there you go. That's the bucket list items that we are revisiting on the four year, one day anniversary of the original <laughs> bucket list. I can't believe that. That's pretty wild. I know it's been a while. 
So because we're kind of looking back and moving forward at the same time, we're also going to unbox a hypothetical question for today's show, which was funny because when I went back to go look at the original bucket list episode, that was a benchmark hypothetical question for Andrew and I. It's a crowd favorite, that particular one is, because that was the infamous zombie apocalypse question when I'm kidnapping people and putting them in dog kennels. Am I ever to save the world? And Andrew thinks everyone's going to kill me <laughs> when I let them out, despite the fact that I saved their life. Yeah, except for the fact that you locked them in a dog kennel for three days. Yeah, I think everybody would get over that. They'd get over it. All right, we're not going to redo that one. With other zombies around. No, no, no. No, those zombies get pushed. Look, we're going back. Just go back and listen to it. Okay, yeah, go back and check it out. Yes, I'm a hero, is what it is. That's the... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, look. So there's a new hypothetical question, which we haven't done one of these in a long time. Yeah. And as I was coming up with it, I realized why we stopped doing them. Because it's super hard to come up (laughs) with these questions. Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to go, would you rather be a giant hamster or a tiny rhinoceros? I mean, those are not the kind of questions that I have a lot of interest in answering. So, hopefully this one's not dark. It could be. I mean, you could take it somewhere dark if you wanted to. It's not a happy question. I was kind of like, well, okay, all right. It could be. It could be a celebration. This is a headspace place. Okay. So, here's the question. It's hard for me to say the question now that I said, oh, it's a happy, it's a good, (laughs) okay. Yeah. You are given 48 hours to live, but you can't tell anyone how do you spend this time. That's the question. And as always, there are some parameters to help shape the conversation. I will say that you die painlessly in your sleep. But other than that, I think you do whatever you want. However, because everyone does this, everybody tries to hack the question. That's the other thing. Everyone tries to hack these questions. When I said you can't tell anyone, that doesn't mean verbally. That's any form of communication. So you can't write a note and hand it to somebody that they can read to let them know Oh my gosh. You can't do that. Okay. And that's part of what makes it interesting. It doesn't mean you can't write the letter, but they're not going to get it until after you're gone. Like they're going to go, well, why didn't you tell me? If you knew that you were out in 48 hours, why didn't you tell me? You're like, well, I can't. You can't have that conversation because you're not around anymore. So you have to decide whether or not you even let them know that you knew ahead of time that you were going to be leaving. So that's the question. What are you going to do? I mean, the reason why this could be a happy question, you go, I'm going to go hang gliding. Like, there's all these, like, fun things that you've never did or you've never done, and, like, now's your chance to do them. Yeah. Or, because I don't think you want to, I mean, do you really want to spend the last two days of your life, like, doing depressing stuff? I don't know. What if you couldn't get, like, I'm busy, and you're like, no, really, we really got to go do something. They're like, "Mm, I got a deadline in a week. You're like, I'm going to be dead. You can't tell them. Mm -hmm. You can't tell them. So you got to convince people also, go do whatever it is that you want to do. Like, do you even sleep? Like, how much sleep? One, I don't know that I would be able to sleep. Day two might not be that productive anyway, because I doubt I slept on day one. Now, you're about to get plenty of sleep in. (laughs) You know, so how much of your time do you leave? Do you go someplace? Or do you just try to, like, I'm going to squeeze in. Is it a quantity quality issue? Do you spend half your time getting to someplace that, like, for instance, I want to see Sangrada Familia. Is this my chance to go? And do I want to spend 14 hours? Yeah. Flying to Tel Aviv to go hang out with Pitsu Kadem for a day? What do you do? That's the question. Yeah. I'm really boring on this one, I have to admit. I would spend time with my family. I would spend as much time with my daughters as humanly possible. 
and I would take care of all the other businessy stuff because I went to sleep pretty quick. Like, how am I going to deal with sleep? Not that I actually went to sleep, but I started the sleep thing. I only had 48 hours, but I'd have to sleep some probably. But I would spend the good time, the awake time with my daughters, and then I'd take care of other businessy garbage that I had to do like while they were asleep. And also, I would try to, that would be one of those things where you, you can't tell them I'd try to be like, go see my parents and see my sister. And it would be like, well, you know, but if I had to spend the day doing that, which for me, that's not too hard because I can drive to see both of them to do that. And then the next day, spend all my kids. And then when my kids were asleep, then that would be, I would actually would be writing letters to people. You know, da, 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 da. Here's, I'm dead. And I probably would say, yeah, I knew I was dying. But there was nothing I could do about it. And we didn't have time to get together and be able to tell people. Hey, you meant something to me while I was yeah. alive. Yeah. Thanks. I know I didn't get to see you before I was dead, but... Peace out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then I do the other stuff. Delete my browser history. No, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> delete all those files off my computer that nobody wants to see. Yeah. You're laughing because you're like, I do that all the time anyway. I think it would just be that. I thought about only for a second just totally ditching and going to do something I always wanted to do, but I don't know. In a way, to me, it feels like I mean, that feels a little more selfish, and I was thinking I'd be a little bit more selfless and just be like, I'm going to spend time with my kids because they're not going to get to see me anymore, and they need to see me as much as possible because I'm the best thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it was important for them to spend time around me instead of me going to do something completely selfish and go skydiving and go to Sagrada or whatever, whatever, that kind of stuff. So that was the stance I took on it. It's kind of boring, I guess. Now, I think it would be different if it was a week or if it was three months or something, then I would know. Right. But- 48 hours is really not a lot of time. Yeah, I thought about making it two weeks as opposed to two days. Yeah. And I went, it becomes a much easier thing to, <laughs> like, then it starts turning into, for me, I honestly don't know how much I would sleep if I go, oh, the end is on pawn me. Yeah. I don't sleep that well or much as it is. And if I had that kind of thing inside my brain, I don't think I'd be like, mm, I have a hard time sleeping under ideal circumstances. And then all of a sudden that happens. Yeah. And I I have a concern that I'd have a hard time convincing my daughter the urgency of spending time with me. Yeah. Not that she's a selfish person. I'm not trying to suggest that at all. But, you know, she kind of operates. She's 19 years old. She's got her own schedule of doing things. Sure. And if I say like, hey, you know, uh, I really want to have dinner with you tonight. She'd say, "Mm, I'm not that hungry tonight. And I was like, I really think we should go have dinner. She's like, "Uh, we can do it later. It's not, you know, whatever. I'm around. That's funny. Yeah, that kind of stuff. That I mean, it's not funny, but I mean, I would just be mean and forceful about it. I'd be like, yep, we're going to dinner. We're going to do this. You're spending the day with me. Yeah. I don't care. I would be like that. And then they're, they're cranky. They might get mad about it, but I don't care. <laughs> They'll feel bad about it later when I'm dead. Well, you got, I, then you're like, I won because you were a jerk to me. And then I'm not here anymore. Yeah, no, it wouldn't be like that, but yeah. Yeah, I don't think that there's any grand adventures that I would be going on either because I think I'd be so mindful of... First off, I would be worried that I'd be literally at any moment I'd tell you I knew exactly how much time I had left. If there was like a 48-hour clock countdown, yeah. literally and almost, I would probably check my watch a billion times during that. Like probably at least mm. two hours of my last 48 hours would me just be looking at my watch. Be spent looking at you. Yeah, I think that would probably be true. <laughs> it's funny. You know, you do. You think, oh, I'm going to go see the people that I want to see. And I go, it would be hard to find... Like, what if it's during the week? People are like, I got to go to work. I mean, I, certainly, I'm not going to work. I'm calling in sick mm-hmm. <laughs> on those two days, <laughs> for sure. But if I want to see like my friends, they're like, uh, whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, we can grab a drink after work. And I'm like, no, no, I got people stacked up. Like, you know, 
You got one hour time slot. This is it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 10 o'clock. We'll go get a coffee. How much coffee could I possibly drink? I'm just here for the water. So I, I do think that probably the, the answer that most people would choose would be to spend time with the people that mattered to them. That would be the way to do it. I'm not so sure I worry about my fares. My fares are not that complicated. They're not so in disarray as it is that I think to go, I'll let someone unbox that. That would probably be the jerkiest thing I would do. I would probably let someone else deal with my affairs. I don't have much in that regret either. For me, it would be like I would be writing those letters when the people I wanted to be with were asleep. Because it's not like I'm going to be able to call somebody and go, hey, let's hang out at 2 in the morning. Yeah. 2 a.m. to 3 a.m., that's your slot. Let's go. No. So yeah, that's when I would be writing letters to people and things like that. I still think, though, I would have to sleep because- Have to and being able to are different. Well, I mean, eventually you would crash. Yeah, I got you. I'm pretty sure that I could go 48 hours with a couple hours of very poor sleep. I don't think I'd have like a six-hour window where I'm sleeping. I don't think that would happen. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could see not being able to sleep because you were just so in your head about stuff. Mm -hmm. But I guess I just know when, when I don't have that much sleep, I'm not real cognizant. I don't want it to be like the hour 45 and I'm like, out of my brain because I'm, I'm so foggy and I haven't slept and nobody really is getting the best of me. But I also, at the same time, I don't think if I had 48 hours, I would sleep for 16 of it or something. Yeah. I, I would try to get four, maybe four to six. I would try. I, I'm just acknowledging that I don't, I don't think I would be successful. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe it was a depressing question after all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think we've reached a point where I'm going to call today's show a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 126, Architectural Bucket List, Take Two. Special thanks to our sponsor, Peterson, which manufactures pack-clad architectural metal cladding systems. Visit pac-clad.com to learn more. We'd also like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? We're available on all major podcast platforms, so hit that subscribe button and you'll get notified every two weeks when we publish an awesome new episode. And while you're there, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star. Someone is eventually going to get a free t-shirt rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this totally tubular episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.